Hey everybody, and welcome into episode 51 of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. Happy Saturday. Hope everybody is having a wonderful day. First day of spring, too. Feels great. So, as usual, we have a lot to cover on the show. We are not lacking for topics whatsoever. Obviously, with free agency in the NFL, the new league year that began Wednesday at 4 o'clock Eastern Time, and of course a new TV deal as well that was announced on Thursday. So we're going to be talking about that, going to be recapping this past weekend at Phoenix Raceway, and previewing the triple header at Atlanta Motor Speedway, which begins later this afternoon. Got the Truck Series at 2.30, Xfinity at 5 o'clock, and then tomorrow, the Folds of Honor 500, 3 o'clock on Fox. So once again, I appreciate you guys tuning in once again. Thank you for all of your support on the Jake's Take podcast page on Facebook. Be sure to tell all your friends about it. So it's been a crazy, crazy week in the NFL for sure. And this really all started on Monday. That was sort of like the, I guess you could say the legal tampering period began in the NFL. And I think without a doubt... The team that stole the most headlines on Monday, without a doubt, the New England Patriots. Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft trying to bounce back from their worst season in 20 years and obviously their first season without Tom Brady. And some of the signings that they made on Monday right off the bat with all the the cap space that they had. Getting Jonu Smith from the Tennessee Titans. Four years, $50 million. And also landing Matthew Judon from the Baltimore Ravens, four years, $56 million. Jalen Mills from the Philadelphia Eagles, four years, $24 million. Nelson Aguilar from the Raiders. I think Bill Belichick, he's motivated and he's inspired, and he. everyone has been saying, oh, well, look, you know, Tom Brady was able to win a Super Bowl without you right off the bat in Tampa Bay. And just knowing the way that Bill Belichick is, he knew that this team had to reload. And obviously, with all the cap space that they had, doing, did a hell of a job with that. And making life a little bit easier for Cam Newton as well. Because, you know, Cam Newton, I was even surprised that they brought him back on another one-year deal. After He got off to such an amazing start. Those first three games in 2020, somewhat looking like the Cam Newton of old. But obviously, once he tested positive for COVID-19, his performance went drastically downhill the rest of the season. So... Incredible signings by the New England Patriots. They're trying their best, without a doubt, to get back into being relevant again in the NFL. But nevertheless, I still feel like the Buffalo Bills are the team to beat in the AFC East. And the other point that I forgot to mention was this past Sunday, Drew Brees, after 20 seasons in the National Football League, Late in the afternoon on Sunday, announcing his retirement after 20 seasons. And that was a very, very special video, how he had his kids announce his retirement and how overjoyed they were saying that, you know, they'll be able to spend more time with dad. And I just want to congratulate Drew on a great career, class act on and off the field. And whether it was his time with the San Diego Chargers, then of course the shoulder injury at the end of 2005, and we all know the story of how the Miami Dolphins passed on him. That definitely could have changed their fortunes right then and there. But going to New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina, and him and Sean Payton, both of them, making an incredible impact right off the bat, not just for that football team, but also that community as well. And I was very, very glad to see him get that Super Bowl championship in February of 2010. And 
excited for Drew that he is now going to be a part of NBC Sports. Hey, who knows? Hopefully he can replace Chris Collinsworth on Sunday Night Football sooner or later. But like I said, class act on and off the field. Now, obviously, there's going to be tons and tons of question marks with the New Orleans Saints. Who is going to be the one to take over? I mean, really, those are impossible shoes to fill taking over for Drew Brees. They brought back Jameis Winston for for 2021, another one-year deal. Will it be him? Will it be Taysom Hill? Will they try and do something in free agency or a trade? Will they try and get a quarterback? Only, Like I said, only time will tell. So for as much as the New England Patriots gained on Monday, the Tennessee Titans, they lost a lot. Jonu Smith, their tight end. Corey Davis, $27 million guaranteed with the New York Jets, a three-year deal for $37 million. And I think looking at it, the Raiders as well. And I talked to Kyle Williams a few days ago, and Kyle said that he he has a this weird, weird feeling that Derek Carr is going to be traded from the Raiders. I mean, why would you trade your center, Rodney Hudson, to the Arizona Cardinals? Why would you trade another lineman, Gabe Jackson, to the Seattle Seahawks for a seventh-round pick and a fifth-round pick? And I told Kyle, I said, honestly, I'm surprised that that Derek Carr and John Gruden, that they have lasted this long together. But Kyle honestly said a lot of these moves that John Gruden has made, because he, let's face it, Mike Mayock might be the GM, Mark Davis might be the owner, but let's face it, like Kyle said, John Gruden is the one calling the shots. And he said all, all of these signings with free agency and trading away your offensive line, and you know, bringing back Theo Riddick and everything, he said, honestly, he's starting to lose a little bit of faith in John Gruden. So even though the Tennessee Titans, even though they lost Jonu Smith, even though they lost Corey Davis, I think it was a foregone conclusion that Bud Dupree was not going to come back to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Obviously, if they would have franchised him for a second year in a row, that would have been a $19 million cap hit. So, Bud Dupree on Monday night agreeing to a big, and I mean big deal, with the Tennessee Titans, $16 million per year. And Bud even said himself that, you know, if he would have been a free agent last year, that probably would have been his likely destination, would have been the Tennessee Titans. Obviously, we know Mike Vrabel, defensive mind and everything, but the defense was definitely lacking last year. Some other notables... Boy, oh boy, I'm telling you right now, when it comes to the NFC East, Washington, without a doubt, is the team to beat. Now, they released Alex Smith. They did re-sign Taylor Heineke. He did a hell of a job putting up a fight against Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in that wild card round. But we all knew that that's not a long-term solution. That's not someone that you could depend on to be the starter for an entire season. But the Washington football team signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, a one-year, $10 million deal, could grow to $12 million with some incentives. And like Jason Boone said himself, being a Philadelphia Eagles fan, Washington, without a doubt, they are the team to beat in the NFC East. And now they finally have a capable quarterback. And that's not a knock on Alex Smith or Taylor Heineke or anything. But obviously, we've seen the arm and the talent that Ryan Fitzpatrick has and all the places that he's been in his career, whether it was the Rams, the Bengals, the Bills, almost getting the New York Jets into the playoffs in 2015, and almost getting the Miami Dolphins into the playoffs this past year. And it's 
sad to think that Ryan Fitzpatrick, that he's been in the league since 2005, and he has never, ever made the playoffs. Well, I think this is by far his best chance to make the playoffs, and you got to love, love the guy, absolutely. So, And then the New England Patriots also getting another tight end, Hunter Henry from the Los Angeles Chargers, three years, $37 million. I think Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels, trying to go back to that two tight end set that they had in the early 2010s with Rob Gronkowski and the late Aaron Hernandez. I think, like I said, I think the Patriots definitely will be back this year. So the Pittsburgh Steelers, they have never been known to spend much in free agency. As a matter of fact, they've been known to lose so many players in free agency. Pittsburgh Steelers teams, they always build through the draft. So I expected that Bud Dupree was not going to come back to the Steelers. But Matt Feeler from Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, sure enough, Monday night, he signed a deal with the Los Angeles Chargers. That's huge, obviously. Like Boone says, build within the trenches. You got a franchise quarterback in Justin Herbert, so you definitely want to protect him. But to lose him and on their defense – Tyson Alualu going back to the Jacksonville Jaguars who drafted him in 2010 and also Mike Hilton incredible job being a defensive back who was undrafted for that matter you know I don't blame Mike one bit for wanting to test free agency and get paid and sure enough he went to the Cincinnati Bengals and being a Steelers fan obviously that hurts but you want to know something Mike deserves every single penny he has really really worked hard for this moment Now, the Steelers, they did bring back Zach Banner, who, what a great story that was last year, to make the roster, and sadly, tearing his ACL week one Monday night against the Giants. I'm so glad that they brought him back for a two-year deal. But, like I said, for them to cut Vince Williams, who had been with the Steelers for eight seasons, that was a huge blow. Unfortunately, a salary cap casualty, and it freed up about $8 million to keep that that one in mine, $8 million. And, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs, I'll tell you what, they are not going to be front runners in the AFC West. I mean, I don't expect them to run away with the AFC West anymore. They released Damian Williams, who opted out last year because of COVID. And in my opinion, Damian Williams should have, and I mean should have been, the MVP of Super Bowl 54. Now, a huge, huge acquisition, getting Kyle Long to come out of retirement to protect Patrick Mahomes because, I mean, losing Mitchell Schwartz, losing both of your tackles in free agency, that was huge. And I guess the other, I mean, this has just been such a crazy week. Obviously, Marvin Jones leaving Detroit for Jacksonville. They've always been known to have so much cap space and, and sign so many people, but hardly ever do they live up to that hype. And Tyrod Taylor... Signing with the Houston Texans could be their starter, obviously. Well, I mean, there's so much going on with with Deshaun Watson. So there's so many winners and losers when it comes to free agency. And, I mean, the Buffalo Bills to get Emmanuel Sanders on a one-year deal. He's been around for a decade and seems to make an impact wherever he goes. And with the Pittsburgh Steelers. So remember when I said that they wanted to – when they freed up $8 million in cap space, releasing Vince Williams. Well, sure enough, this past day on Friday, signing Juju Smith-Schuster 
to a one-year, $8 million deal when there was talk about you know the Jets being interested in him, the Ravens were interested in him, even the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. And I know that I've been very, very critical of Juju this past year, obviously, with the TikTok videos and dancing on team logos and everything. But I, looking back on it, I regained a lot of respect for Juju when he stayed with the Steelers for less money. I mean, think of it, the Baltimore Ravens were offering him $5 million more million. And I mean, to go from, well, I mean, Mike Hilton went from the Steelers to the Bengals. But for Juju to say that he was going to take less money just so he could stay in Pittsburgh, I think that that's definitely, I think that's definitely admirable on his part. So, and like I said, this has just been one crazy start to the league year for 2021. John Brown going from the Buffalo Bills to the Las Vegas Raiders, a one-year deal. And Zach Ertz, tight end for the Eagles. You know, they said that they will entertain trade offers. And how about A.J. Green, a one-year deal? And Pro Football Talk the other day, they said they're wondering what this means for Larry Fitzgerald. Honestly, more than anything, I wouldn't even be surprised if Larry Fitzgerald retires. I mean, this has been talked about for quite a while now. So... He has been that loyal to the Arizona Cardinals. I'm sure there were probably many, many teams these past few years that were much better, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, maybe even the Atlanta Falcons that probably could have made an offer for him. But he has always been so, so loyal to the Arizona Cardinals. So I could see him definitely retiring as an Arizona Cardinal. But Curtis Samuel to the Washington football team, another weapon for Ryan Fitzpatrick alongside Terry McLaurin, Curtis and Terry, they were teammates in college at one time, and they even talked about this. And for Johnny Glow's Minnesota Vikings to get Patrick Peterson after 10 seasons with the Arizona Cardinals, he said he wasn't surprised one bit that they released Kyle Rudolph. Kyle went to the New York Giants. Obviously, Johnny Glow, who good possibility we could have him on the show next weekend for the dirt race at Bristol, but... He feels very, very confident in the tight end they have in Irv Smith Jr. So a couple other notables, Kenny Galladay from the Detroit Lions, he still has not signed anywhere. There's been talk about the New York Giants. There has been talk about the Chicago Bears trying to pitch $12 million to him. And a lot of people have said that this has been, in free agency, this has been very, very tough for wide receivers. I mean, Juju, one year, $8 million, Kenny Galladay, this has definitely hurt the wide receiver market. And Bruce Arians' son, Jake, how ironic, but Jake Arians said a few weeks ago on Twitter that he could see a lot of big names taking one-year deals, obviously with the cap situation this year compared to next year. So a couple other, like I said, a couple other notables, Mitchell Schwartz, the Kansas City Chiefs released him, Alejandro Villanueva, there's still some talk whether or not the Steelers are going to bring him back or release him. And Will Fuller going to the Miami Dolphins, and at the same time, they traded for Isaiah Wilson, first-rounder from the Tennessee Titans, but obviously some very, very bad, a very, very bad situation with Isaiah Wilson, and it sounds like he does not want to get help, so as quickly as they traded for him, they had to release him. And of course, a few other notables, first off. Like I said, Will Fuller going to the Miami Dolphins and beefing up that offensive line even more. Kyle Long coming out of retirement. And Matt Prater is now going to the Arizona Cardinals. Gerald Everett 
with the Seattle Seahawks. I know they're trying their best to keep Russell Wilson. They're, you know. So a very, very interesting start. Kyle Van Oy reuniting with, with Bill Belichick, New England, after one year down in Miami. Obviously, Brian Flores, that connection right there. And Patrick Chung retiring. And Philip Lindsay leaving the Denver Broncos for the Houston Texans. It's definitely good to have football back. That's for sure. Now, another thing, talking about the NFL, there has been so much talk about them expanding to 17 regular season games in 2021. Well, the other day, sure enough, it was announced the opponents for those 17th games. I think it's only a matter of time until that's going to be announced. So, looking at the AFC East, the Buffalo Bills, they will take on the Washington football team. The way that this works is obviously Buffalo, they won their division. Washington won their division. This is how they came up with the formula for a 17th game. You play someone out of in a different conference that finished in the same position in your their division and your division the year before. So Miami Dolphins, New York Giants, New England Patriots, Dallas Cowboys, New York Jets, Philadelphia Eagles. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they will host the Seattle Seahawks, Baltimore Ravens, Los Angeles Rams, Cleveland Browns, Arizona Cardinals, Cincinnati Bengals and the San Francisco 49ers, Tennessee Titans versus the New Orleans Saints, Indianapolis Colts, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that should be a should be a real barn burner, but it all depends, Jason Boone said, this all falls on Carson Wentz's shoulders. And really all it's all in his head too. If Carson Wentz can stay healthy and if he can regain his confidence reuniting himself with Frank Reich, he honestly feels like the Colts could be the team to beat in the AFC South. No disrespect to the Tennessee Titans, but obviously when you lose Jonu Smith, you lose Corey Davis, and you wonder at some point or another as far as Derrick Henry's production, that's another key loss for them as well. Arthur Smith, now the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Houston Texans versus the Carolina Panthers. Jacksonville Jaguars versus the Atlanta Falcons. And finally... The Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers, Las Vegas Raiders and the Chicago Bears, how ironic, obviously with Khalil Mack, Los Angeles Chargers and the Minnesota Vikings and the Denver Broncos and the Detroit Lions. Those will be your 17th NFL game opponents for 2021. And finally, on Thursday... The NFL announced a new set of national television deals keeping games on ESPN and ABC, Fox, CBS, Amazon, and NFL Network through the 2033 season. So this was the article up on ESPN. The agreement keeps Sunday afternoon, game, Sunday afternoon games on CBS and Fox, Sunday night games on NBC, and Monday night games on ESPN, with some games also airing on ABC. For the first time, Amazon will be the exclusive home for Thursday Night Football. That doesn't come as a surprise whatsoever. Which will also be on over-the-air channels in the competing team's home markets. NFL Network will also air select games. ABC picks up two Super Bowls during the deal, the first in 2026, with the other networks airing three each. ESPN's package adds six games to the network during the season. There will be three Monday night triple headers with games on ESPN, followed by a game on ABC. 
There will also be a Saturday doubleheader during the season finale, or this the final week of the regular season. Obviously, I'm thrilled about that. And one Sunday morning game streaming nationally on ESPN+. ESPN, which had previously aired a wildcard playoff game, will add one game in the divisional round as well. And for the first time, ESPN's Monday Night Football will be able to flex games starting with Week 12 of the season to ensure better matchups. ESPN's package also includes the ability to include four teams up to two times each. ESPN will continue to televise the NFL Draft as it has since 1980 and the Pro Bowl. NFL Primetime will also return to ESPN Plus on Sunday nights streaming throughout the week. I think this is huge for ESPN and ABC, first off, to get back into the Super Bowl rotation for the first time since February of 2006. And I also think this is big how there is now flexing for Monday Night Football, just like we saw with Sunday Night Football when it began on 2000 and, in 2006 when NBC came back. Because, as we all know, from 1970 to 2005, Monday Night Football was the game. That was the game of the week. And obviously, with it being on ABC, you know, that was the one. Back then, ESPN had Sunday Night Football, and the games were always lackluster. But when NBC came back in 2006, and they introduced Sunday Night Football, and they had the flex scheduling, and Monday Night Football was moved from ABC to ESPN, things have definitely not been the same ever since. Monday Night Football has definitely lost its luster, in my opinion. So I think to be able to flex games, I think that this will make Monday Night Football a, a marquee matchup again. And you know, possibly having that same feel it once did that Sunday Night Football does. As far as Amazon with the Thursday night games being streamed on there, this doesn't come as a surprise to me whatsoever. Jason Boone and I, we talked about it. I think this is a sign of things to come. Obviously, NBCSN, you know, they announced that they will be folding at the end of 2021. And it makes you wonder, you know, with NASCAR and IndyCar, is that the next thing where they're going to be streaming practices on, like, say, Peacock, for instance? And one Sunday morning game streaming nationally on ESPN+, Plus, so I would imagine that will probably be a London game. You know, Urban Meyer, the Jacksonville Jaguars, they said they still expect to be doing games in London. Obviously, it all depends on the situation with COVID-19 because the international games last year, those were scrapped, understandably so. The game's over in London, and there was also going to be an NFL game in Mexico. So I'm pretty excited about the, this new TV package that, that's going to be coming in a few years. And like I said, some very, very exciting times ahead in the NFL. We have the draft coming up on April 29th through May 1st in Cleveland. And sometime in the month of May, it hasn't been said when, but the NFL schedule will be coming out. And I think that's the thing. Usually the NFL schedule would come out um, the week before the NFL draft. It would be exactly one week before the NFL draft, sometimes two. And last year, obviously, with COVID-19 and having to do the draft virtually and not even knowing if you you were going to have a full season or even a season in general, sure enough, they postponed releasing the schedule until the week after the NFL draft. It was released the, the first full week of May. So I would imagine maybe a week after the NFL draft or two weeks after the NFL draft is when we will get the 2021 schedule. And also, also the factor of the 17th game and 
because of that, you know, alone, the Super Bowl for next year, it was originally scheduled for February 6, 2022. I would imagine that now it's going to be February 13th in Los Angeles on NBC. And like I said, just some very, very interesting times. I think the Patriots made themselves better. The Bills, some smart, smart signings, getting Mitch Trubisky to be Josh Allen's backup. And you got teams like the Chicago Bears, on the other hand, signing Andy Dalton to be their quarterback. I I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, this is a make-or-break year for Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace, the general manager. And there was a lot of talk that they aggressively tried to pursue Russell Wilson and get him from the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, they were offering three first-round picks, but obviously a very, very strange situation going on there as well. You know, it it sounds like they're trying to repair the relationship with Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll. You know, they've said that they're not they're not interested in trading Russell just yet. I mean, if I were them, I would have gone. I mean, it sounds like they went all in to try to get him. If I'm the New Orleans Saints, obviously I would do everything in my power to try to get Russell Wilson. I mean, compared to Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill, I mean, sure enough, when Taysom Hill when he took over for Drew Brees. Last year, when he was injured, we saw how how limited he really, really was as far as performance goes. So that's just the latest with the NFL. Now, before I get into recapping the weekend at Phoenix and previewing the weekend at Atlanta, obviously, being at Atlanta Motor Speedway in March, obviously, this calls for a little bit of reflection. So last year... The start to the season that we had for NASCAR in 2020, obviously with the Daytona 500 having to be run on Monday night, the horrific crash by Ryan Newman at the very end, wondering if he was even alive, and Denny Hamlin going on to win. It was a crazy start to the season, obviously with Joey Logano winning at Las Vegas, Alex Bowman surprisingly dominating the race at California Speedway, and then the weekend of that race at California Speedway, was when you really started to hear about like the first cases of COVID-19 in America. And especially with it being in Southern California, and especially at that point how Washington was such a hot spot, people were wondering what was going to happen that weekend at California Speedway or the weekend after that out at Phoenix. And I know a lot of fans talked about when they went to that race at Phoenix on March 8th, how the track was actually handing out hand sanitizer. So, nevertheless, it was a great weekend of racing that weekend at Phoenix with Brandon Jones winning on Saturday. And then Joey Logano, you know, two wins in his first four races with Paul Wolf, And it was just a great race overall. But we all remember just three days later, Wednesday night, March 11th, when Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz, when word came out that he had tested positive for COVID-19, And that was such a strange turn of events to follow. At the beginning of the Oklahoma City Thunder and Utah Jazz game, how they delayed the start, and everybody was wondering, like, oh, my God, like, why are they delaying the start? You know, you you even wonder, like, I'm sure fans were even wondering, like, God forbid, like, what's going on? Is there something going on in the arena? And then, sure enough, just a few minutes later, when the PA announcer announced that the game was postponed, This was the beginning 
And it wasn't even long after that having the NBA announce that their season was suspended. So I remember coming home from work that night, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, my God. Like, the NBA just suspended their season. And you just kind of had that feeling that everybody was going to follow soon afterwards. Sure enough, the following day, Thursday, March 12th, hockey, the National Hockey League, the American Hockey League, announcing that they were pausing their season. Major League Baseball announcing that they were pushing back the start of their season. And in the midst of all of this there was talk about NASCAR. What is NASCAR going to do? They're still scheduled to race at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Like, what's going on? Are they going to postpone this? Are they going to postpone Miami? Because Miami, at the time, was becoming a bit of a hotbed as well. And sure enough, that afternoon, you know, NASCAR announced that they were going to race that weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway just without fans, and the following weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway just without fans. But sure enough, Very, very early that afternoon, March Madness, we are all thrilled, absolutely thrilled that it's back. And it, sure enough, yesterday was just an absolutely amazing day with with upsets galore. But March Madness being canceled, canceled. At that point, you really, I started to wonder, like, okay, is is NASCAR really going to race this weekend? You you just kind of had that gut feeling. And I know people were we're giving NASCAR a lot of flack, like, you know, why aren't you pausing your season? You know, NBA did it, hockey did it, baseball did it, why aren't you guys doing it? Even Formula One. Formula One, they were getting ready to have their season opener in Australia and in the middle of the night announced that the race was canceled. So I can, I'll never forget Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, teams were unloading at Atlanta and just reading some of the stories about how a lot of crew members, they were waiting for the garage to be open, and it wouldn't be open. And at the time that it was supposed to, and all of them were wondering, like, okay, something something is up. Something big is about to come down. And I'll never forget, looking on Twitter, it was about 11, 11.30 or so that morning, and you all of a sudden you hear all this talk about haulers leaving. Someone put up a photo of Jimmy Johnson's hauler heading back to North Carolina. I thought, oh, my God. And then sure enough, 11.30 in the morning, how NASCAR announced that not only that weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway, but the following weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway was postponed because of COVID-19. And even then, you know, when they said, like, you know, their plans were to resume March 29th at Texas Motor Speedway, you kind of knew right then and there that was not going to happen. And that was a very, very weird Saturday and Sunday, no truck race, no Xfinity race. Then that Sunday, no cup race. And how they were re-airing the 2019 Folds of Honor 500 that Brad Keselowski won. Even though I enjoyed watching it again, it just felt weird. And sure enough, later that evening, how the CDC, how they put out those guidelines and those recommendations not to have like any mass gatherings or anything. I thought, yeah, I thought NASCAR, NASCAR is not going to come back for a while. And sure enough, the following day, how they announced that the season was going to be put on pause until at the earliest May 9th, Mother's Day Eve at Martinsville Speedway. So it was definitely a surreal and humbling time, and I'm so thankful that NASCAR, NASCAR and Fox, that they had the iRacing series running at 
obviously the tracks that they were scheduled to run at, like Homestead, Miami, Texas, Bristol, Richmond, Talladega, Dover. And as much flack as they got for being the last professional sport to shut down, they definitely got a lot of praise and deservedly so for being the first professional sport to return and return safely. And I'll never forget how exciting that was the last weekend of April when they said May 17th at Darlington, we're coming back. We're going to be the first professional sport to come back, obviously without fans. But sure enough, having those races at Darlington, one on Sunday, one on Wednesday night, and then another doubleheader at Charlotte with the Coca-Cola 600, and then another night race in the middle of the week. It's definitely been surreal to think how far we've come ever since that eerie Friday at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And it definitely feels good to to be back, you know, to, to have racing again and to have fans, even if it's just a limited capacity. I know Pocono Raceway, they initially announced that they were only going to have 20% capacity for their doubleheader weekend, June 26th and 27th. So I made sure that I got tickets immediately. But obviously this past Monday with Governor Wolf lifting more restrictions and now possibly being ramped up to about a 50% capacity that weekend at Pocono and everything, slowly but surely it feels good that we're starting to get back to normal, even if there is such a thing. So, like I said, I think this particular weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway, just being very reflectful and very thankful for, I guess, really how far the sport has come ever since then. And it's been incredible, even today up at Pocono Raceway, how they're administering 3,000 vaccines with one of their partners, Lehigh Valley Health Network, and even Charlotte Motor Speedway and Indianapolis Motor Speedway, how they're administering vaccines as well. Like I said, just everybody doing their part to help this world get back to normal as quick as possible. I mean, I doubt I doubt that we're going to have a full capacity crowd later this year at a race, but I think that would be really, really incredible if come February 20th, 2022, if the Daytona 500 is the first NASCAR race to have a full capacity for the first time since March 8th of last year at Phoenix Raceway. So pretty incredible to think about. So last weekend at Phoenix Raceway, it was definitely an eventful weekend, to say the least. (laughs) And we have a triple header this weekend at Atlanta Motor Speedway, obviously starting later today with the Truck Series. 2.30 on Fox Sports 1, Vince Welch, Michael Waltrip, and Ryan Blaney. He's actually going to be in the booth for not just the Truck Series race, but the Xfinity race as well, 5 o'clock on Fox Sports 1. Him, Adam Alexander, and Tyler Reddick, they will be providing the call of that. So, looking ahead to today's Truck Series race at Atlanta Motor Speedway, their first race in two weeks since Las Vegas. The Freight Auctions 200. John Hunter Nemechek coming off that huge win at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, beating his boss, Kyle Busch. Sure enough, they are on the front row for today's race. Matt Crafton, who won the track race at Atlanta in 2015, he'll be starting third. Stuart Friesen, fourth. He made some news. First off, next Saturday at Bristol, his wife, Jessica, who has run on tons of dirt tracks herself, she's going to try and make her truck series debut 
in the number 62 Toyota. Stewart drives the number 52. And this would be the first time since the late 90s that a husband and wife could be out on the racetrack in the same race together. Elton Sawyer and Patty Moise, they ran tons of Bush Series races together in the 90s. So that that's really, really awesome. And then for the Bristol Dirt Race, the Cup Race on March 28th, Stuart Friesen will be making his Cup Series debut in the number 77 Chevrolet for Spire. Ben Rhodes, who won the first two truck races of the season, he'll be starting fifth. Austin Hill, sixth. Teammates Zane Smith and Sheldon Creed, seventh and eighth. Todd Gilliland, ninth. And Brett Moffitt, who won this race in 2018, he rounds out the top ten. Chandler Smith, 11th. Austin Wayne Self, 12th. Johnny Sauter, matching his number, 13th. Tanner Gray, Parker Kligerman, Timothy Peters, Carson Hosevar. Chris Wright was scheduled to start 18th, but he tested positive for COVID-19. Driving the O2 truck in his place is Josh Berry, who's been doing one hell of a job driving for Dale Earnhardt Jr. That number eight junior motorsports car, we'll talk about him in just a second. Grant Enfinger, the defending winner of this race, finally back in his truck, the 98. And the truck that he drove at Las Vegas, the number nine of Cody Rohrbach, starting 20th. Rafael Lassard, he'll be starting 23rd. Jordan Anderson, 24th. A couple other notables. Dawson Cram, 27th. Brian Keselowski, he's working on that truck. Haley Deegan, 28th. Some hard luck for her. Derek Krauss, 29th. Tyler Ankrum in 30th. They've had a rugged start to the season. Bill Lester, who this race, 15 years ago today, the cup race at Atlanta Motor Speedway becoming the first African-American driver to be in the Cup Series since Willie T. Ribs. Bill, this is his first truck race since 2007, and he will be starting 31st. Ryan Truex, 32nd. Corey Roper, 34th. Brett Holmes, 35th. A couple other notables. Spencer Davis, 39th. And Ross Chastain, his first truck race since September of last year. He rounds out the field in 40th. Some other big news with some of these teams. The number 11 of Spencer Davis, Bubba Wallace, is going to be driving that truck next Saturday at Bristol. And that 44 truck that I just talked about, guess who's going to be running it next Saturday at Bristol? Kyle Larson, who last night was at the Bristol Dirt Nationals. He finished second. Kyle Bush and Chase Elliott, they were also in the Bristol Dirt Nationals. They'll actually be in it tonight, as a matter of fact. Kyle Bush, as soon as he gets done with this truck race, he's going to go up to Bristol and take part in the Bristol Dirt Nationals. Austin Dillon even won one of the heat races earlier this week at Bristol. So a lot of guys getting extra seat time for next weekend at Bristol, obviously with this being the first cup race on dirt since 1970. Now, when I look at today's field... For the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series. Obviously, the chalk pick, as Jason Boone says, obviously the chalk pick is Kyle Busch, who has obviously many wins across the board at Atlanta Motor Speedway, but especially in the Truck Series. 2005, 2007, 2008, 2019. But John Hunter Nemechek himself, John Hunter won the truck race at Atlanta in 2016, driving for his dad, Joe, in a much, and I mean much more underfunded truck 
than obviously what he has right now at Kyle Busch Motorsports. So obviously, if John Hunter was able to win at Atlanta in a family-owned truck that was severely underfunded, and now he's in arguably the best equipment in the garage area with Kyle Busch Motorsports, myself and Boone, we are both going with the number four of John Hunter Nemechek to go back-to-back in the Camping World Truck Series, beating the boss Kyle Busch once again, and like I said, pretty much asserting himself as the favorite for this Truck Series championship. No disrespect to Sheldon Creed, but obviously that's what I see so far. I think, like I said, I mean, those first three right there, John Hunter, Kyle Busch, Matt Crafton, I think it's a race that's definitely going to come down to those three in the end. So this past weekend at Phoenix Raceway, obviously talking about favorites for the championship and everything, Austin Sendrick is doing one hell of a job in defense of his Xfinity championship. So the race got going with Daniel Hemrick on the pole this past Saturday at Phoenix. And Austin Sendrick himself, you know, he was starting in third. Brandon Jones, he was starting second. And once again, you know, early on, Austin Sendrick, he was looking like his old self. Sure enough, winning that first stage in pretty convincing fashion. But Brad Keselowski's pit crew, once again, they were pitting him on Saturday. They had a little trouble on their first stop. And from that point on, Daniel Hemrick, it looked like he was in control of this race, winning the second stage. And, of course, that's the other thing that people have been talking about at length. You know, when is Daniel Hemrick finally going to get that first NASCAR win? Not just that first Xfinity win, but that first NASCAR win overall. Second eight times in the Xfinity series. And think of all the teams that he has driven for. Like my buddy Larry Spencer was talking about on Twitter last week. He drove for Brad Keselowski in trucks. He's driven in Xfinity and Cup for Richard Childress. He's also driven for Dale Earnhardt Jr. in Xfinity. He's now driving for Joe Gibbs. Daniel is a good guy, but obviously at some point you have to win, especially these opportunities are few and far between to be in elite equipment like this. And obviously, you know, Brandon Jones, he's won. Harrison Burton, he's won. Ty Gibbs, Joe's grandson, won right off the bat in his Xfinity debut. And I think the thing with Daniel Hemrick is sometimes I just feel like he, sometimes I feel like he's trying too hard. And sure enough, you know, he wins the second stage and then speeds on pit road. So the other big storyline so far has been the struggles of Junior Motorsports. And Dale Earnhardt Jr., you know, he, he talked about himself on the Dale Jr. download a few weeks ago. He didn't make no bones about it. The organization is struggling. And while a lot of it is bad luck, some of it, I mean, they just really don't have that raw speed that you've seen out of them over the past few years. And Noah Gregson, oh, my God. To have the engine blow 67 laps into the race, five races into 2021, Noah Gregson has failed to finish three times. Obviously, Daytona's Daytona. But sure enough, getting spun out on the road course. Three laps away from winning at Miami, having an eight-second lead, and David Starr blowing the tire right in front of him. And to finish fifth at Las Vegas in his hometown, but this is just the latest example. Not only is this hurting his chances of making the playoffs in Xfinity, but at the same time, I think it's hurting his chances of possibly taking that 48 car away from Alex Bowman in 2022. I mean, obviously, Noah Gregson, Junior Motorsports, that Hendrick Motorsports connection. But, you know, Michael Annette, Michael Annette having the engine blow. And I think 
Nobody was surprised to see Justin Allgaier up there last Saturday and leading laps. I mean, you can make the argument Phoenix is his best racetrack. That, along with maybe, say, Dover and Richmond. But I think without a doubt, I think the biggest storyline, not just for junior motorsports, but as far as the Xfinity race this this past Saturday, is Josh Berry. You know, Josh, he only has 12 races in that A-car before Sam Mayer turns 18 and takes it over the rest of the year. And obviously, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. himself, you know, he's got an Xfinity race planned for later this year. We just don't know where. I'm hoping October 16th, my birthday at Texas Motor Speedway, but only time will tell. Anyway, Josh, obviously he's raced on tons of short tracks up and down the southern part of the country, especially North and South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, places like that. To be running third in the Xfinity Series and having, I mean, really just having a great run. Having a great run. And to see, unfortunately, to see him get wrecked by Santino Ferrucci and end up finishing 36. And I don't blame Josh Berry one bit when he got out of his car and he gave Josh Berry not one but two middle fingers. Yeah, Josh Berry. When he gave Santino Ferrucci two middle fingers when he got out of the car. It even cracked me up, too, that, you know, he had a smile on his face as he was giving Santino Ferrucci double barrels. That's the one thing, you know, Santino Ferrucci, he's he's done some Xfinity races so far this year. He was in IndyCar. And even Dale Earnhardt Jr. himself, when he, he called the Indy 500 in 2019 for NBC, Dale talked about how much he enjoyed watching Santino Ferrucci and how, how much he loved his aggression and everything. Well, how ironic that aggression comes back to bite you and takes out one of your cars. But like I said, I love seeing that passion from Josh Berry. Obviously, that's the passion. When you give someone two middle fingers, that's something that you're going to see at your local short track. And, you know, Josh Berry, as much as he wins on these local short tracks, obviously he's not afraid to show his emotion either. But for as calm as the first half of that Xfinity race was, obviously, like the old saying goes, Cautions breed cautions. And Harrison Burton getting spun. Brett Moffat getting spun. And A.J. Allmendinger, as awesome as of a job as he has done so far, to me, that was absolutely boneheaded what he did this past Saturday when he, coming off of what used to be turn four at Phoenix, it's now the backstretch, but how he just turned right into Brandon Jones. Didn't even try to make the corner or anything. And sure enough, Brandon spins and hits the inside wall, and his day is over just like that. I was I was disappointed in, in A.J. Allmendinger, to say the least. I mean, this is a guy that's been around for so long, raced in Champ Car, IndyCar, raced in the Cup Series for many years. I mean, that's that's a rookie move right then and there. That's Bush League, no pun intended. I mean, this used to be the Bush Series. But seriously, like you're, you're, you're better than that. But nevertheless, once again, it was looking like Austin Sendrick was well on his way to another win. And sure enough, with just seven laps to go, we had Alex LeBay wrecking in turn four. And what a crazy restart that was. Daniel Hamrick driving all the way back up to second to have a shot. And once again, to spin the tires on that restart. And from that point on, Jeb Burton, how he just bonsai right in there, right into Daniel Hamrick, took him out, took out Justin Allgaier, Justin Moneymaker Haley, obviously a rugged start to the season like, like Boone and I were just talking about before we recorded. So to no surprise, Austin Sendrick winning at Phoenix, the second 
Xfinity race in a row at Phoenix, for that matter. And, of course, we know the championship will be there on November 6th. And once again, winning an Xfinity race at Phoenix with Brad Keselowski's pit crew, so just keep that in mind. So Austin Sendrick with his second Xfinity Series win of the season, and I'm going to do it right now. I'm changing my championship pick. I picked Justin Allgaier at the beginning of the year. I'm, I'm definitely changing it to Austin Sendrick just the way that Allgaier's luck has been. There's only been two drivers in the history of the Xfinity Series that have won and finished second in their first two races in this particular series. One of them was a cup champion in Terry Labonte, and the other one is Ty Gibbs. Amidst all of the craziness, Joe's grandson finishes second in his second Xfinity Series race after winning on the Daytona road course. Brandon Brown, a career-best third with that family-owned team out of Virginia, and Brandon even said it after the race. You know, he said, think of it, we're well ahead of junior motorsports right now. And he went back and he backtracked it and he said, you know, I didn't mean that as a shot to Dale Earnhardt Jr. or to Kelly Earnhardt Miller. But obviously, we're just proud of the fact that we're a family-owned team and we're making strides. And Kelly tweeted back to him and she said, she said, don't even worry about it. I didn't consider it a dig at us whatsoever. Riley Herbst finally, finally gets a top five finish with Stuart Haas Racing. A.J. Allmendinger, like I said, him and his teammate Jeb Burton, the aggressive driving that they had, they were fifth and sixth. Bailey Curry, seventh for Mike Harmon. Justin Allgaier, like I said, obviously getting into the wall on the backstretch there with two laps to go. He still managed to finish eighth. Brett Moffat, ninth, and Jeremy Clements, tenth. Myatt Snyder, much better weekend than, you know, last weekend at Las Vegas. He finished 11th, Harrison Burton 12th, J.J. Haley 13th, and Timmy Hill 14th. Incredible job by those two and very severely underfunded equipment. And Santino Ferrucci, like I said, all the headlines that he made pretty much for all the wrong reasons, you know, he was able to finish 15th. A couple other notables that we have, Tommy Joe Martin 17th, Stephen Parsons, Phil's son 18th, Jeffrey Earnhardt 19th, Jade Buford, he had a hell of a run going there in the top 10, hit the wall late, finished 20th. Landon Castle, 22nd. Daniel Hamrick, all the way back in 23rd after the trouble that he had. And Justin Haley, 26th after, like I said, his car was killed and he couldn't even complete the final lap. Brandon Jones was 33rd. Ryan Sieg, tough start to the season after switching over to Ford, 37th. Michael Annette, 38th. Noah Gregson, 39th. So, like I said, a roller coaster start to the season for Junior Motorsports. Not much luck at all. So, later today, as I said, 5 o'clock on Fox Sports 1, Ryan Blaney and Tyler Reddick having the call along with Adam Alexander. And sure enough, on the pole for today's Xfinity race at Atlanta Motor Speedway, it is the 22 of Austin Sendrick. Starting second is going to be Jeb Burton. Third is going to be A.J. Allmendinger, the defending winner of this race. Brandon Brown is starting fourth. Harrison Burton, fifth. Justin Allgaier, sixth. Riley Herp, seventh. Brett Moffitt, starting eighth. Myatt Snyder, ninth. And Jeremy Clements, tenth. Eleventh is Daniel Hemrick. Twelfth is Santino Ferrucci. Thirteenth is Justin Moneymaker Haley. Fourteenth, Bailey Curry. Fifteenth, Tommy Joe Martins. 16th, Brandon Jones at his home track. 
17th is Timmy Hill. And starting 18th, taking part in their first Xfinity Series race since November of 2010 at Miami, 2004 and 2005 NASCAR Busch Series champion Martin Truex Jr. How about that? Martin was supposed to do the July Xfinity race at Atlanta, but obviously with Kyle Busch running the Bristol Dirt Nationals and doing the truck race and everything, you know, he's he's got to fly up to Bristol as soon as that truck race is over. So they swapped races. Martin is going to be doing this race. This was supposed to be Kyle's first Xfinity race of 2021. That won't be until May 22nd in Austin, Texas. So he'll do the Truex will do this race. Kyle Busch, he'll do the July race. At Atlanta, and that'll be his last Xfinity start of the year. Josh Williams, 19th. Landon Castle, 20th. Jade Buford, 21st. Josh Berry, double duty for him today in 22nd. A couple other notables. Jeffrey Earnhardt, 26th. A track that his family's been very successful at. His grandfather won here. Dale Earnhardt won here nine times. His uncle, Dale Earnhardt Jr., got a cup win here in 2004. And his father, Terry, won the ARCA race at Atlanta in 2001. Michael Annette, 27th. Noah Gregson, 30th. Wow. Wow. Ryan Sieg, 39th at his home track. And rounding out the field is Noah Gregson's best friend, David Starr, in 40th. So when I look back to this race last year, the Xfinity race at Atlanta, early on in this race, it was a back-and-forth battle between Noah Gregson and Austin Sendrick. And... Sure enough, or I was going to say, sure enough, Austin Sendrick, he won the first stage of this race. And from that point on, he looked great. Chase Briscoe looked great. Obviously, with that dirt track background, being able to run right up against the fence and you're sliding all over the place. But eventually, Austin Sendrick and Chase Briscoe, they both got nabbed for speeding on pit road. Noah Gregson drove a tremendous race last year, but... I think the biggest surprise of all in this race last year was A.J. Allmendinger. He started all the way back in 30th and was able to take the lead with 37 laps to go and, like I said, survive a late race restart. And to be able to beat Noah Gregson and Justin Moneymaker Haley and Daniel Hemrick and Harrison Burton, Justin Allgaier, Ross Chastain, Brandon Jones, Chase Briscoe, Anthony Alfredo. That was the top 10 in this race last year. And the reason I say all those names is because up until that point, when you thought of A.J. Allmendinger when it came to NASCAR, oh, yeah, you know, he's good at Martinsville. He's good at Daytona and Talladega. But, I mean, really, you, you can only expect him to win at road courses. That was always the knock on A.J. And I will never forget the joy in his voice when he got out of that car and said, oh, my God, I won on an oval. Just hearing that that joy and that emotion that A.J. Allmendinger has always always had, you could tell that was big. And I even said it on my Atlanta show last year. I had a feeling right then and there, once A.J. won at Atlanta, I had a feeling that, you know what, I think he's going to do the full Xfinity schedule in 2021. And sure enough, here we are. And I told Boone before we recorded, you know, he said, obviously, Justin Haley, he's, he's off to a tough start this year. And I said, more than anything, I just think colleague expanding to three teams, you know, him, Justin Haley, and Jeb Burton, you know, when you, any race team, when you expand and create another team, it's going to help one team and it's going to hurt another. And I mean, obviously, with the 16 team now being a full-time team at colleague, obviously, 
you know, Matt Colleague and Chris Rice, you know, you're going to put a majority of your effort into that to make sure the team gets off the ground running good. And I mean, in my opinion, obviously, AJ Allmendinger, all the different forms of racing that he has raced in, no disrespect to Justin Haley or Jeb Burton, but I mean, obviously, amongst the three of them, I feel like AJ is the most talented of the three of them. So he's he got a top five at Daytona, he made a bonehead mistake on the road course trying to beat Austin Sendrick to win the first stage. And sure enough, going into the grass and ripping the splitter off and having to ride around the rest of the day and finish, finish 35th. Won a stage at Homestead, finishing 14th. But sure enough, that win at a Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Another win on an oval for AJ Allmendinger. And like I said, sort of bulldozing his way to a top five last weekend at Phoenix. To me, when I look at Atlanta and when I look at Las Vegas, I see a lot of similarities with how bumpy both of the tracks are. But obviously with Atlanta being as abrasive as it is. And you talk about tire wear and tire conservation and everything. And the fact that AJ was good at Las Vegas on a long green flag run. And I feel like you're going to see a lot of long green flag runs, not just today, but also tomorrow for the cup race. Now, Boone said, obviously, you know, for him, he said for him, it's hard not to go against Austin Cindric right now. And especially the fact that Austin is going to be in the cup race tomorrow, driving a fourth Penske car, the number 33. So, Initially, I wanted to go with Austin Sendrick, but I went out on a bit of a limb, and I am, in fact, taking A.J. Allmendinger to win the Xfinity race at Atlanta for the second year in a row. Now we move ahead to the main event for Sunday. Now, this past weekend at Phoenix Raceway, last Sunday, about 3.30 Eastern time, sure enough, we got underway. Brad Keselowski on the pole and the other story before even before race day was saturday night at phoenix not one but two hendrick motorsports cars failing inspection the number five of kyle larson who was scheduled to start second and the 24 of william byron he was scheduled to start 10th and to top it all off not even an hour before the race began at phoenix chase elliott three hendrick motorsports cars Chase was scheduled to start sixth. He had to go to the back of the field for unapproved adjustments. So at the same time, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, well, Alex Bowman, he's he's due to go to the back, right? I mean, he was starting in 21st. So obviously, for some people, you're kind of wondering right then and there, well, Kyle Larson, you know, Hendrick Motorsports, and I'm not taking anything away from them, but William Byron, you know, he dominated and won Miami when nobody expected it. Kyle Larson, he dominated and won Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And now Chase Elliott having to go to the back. So, obviously, for some people, it made them wonder right then and there, like, you know, are they really this good or are they just bending the rules, <laughs> you know? But sure enough, we got going about quarter to four on the East Coast and Brad Keselowski dropping all the way to the very bottom of the dogleg, past the pit exit. I mean, almost clipping the pit wall as well. And I know that I picked Brad to win. You know, because I figured it's a flat track, 750 horsepower, low downforce. So I figured, you know, he dominated New Hampshire. He dominated Richmond. I think he's going to run away with this race. But the problem I noticed early on was him and Jeremy Bullins, they just didn't have that long run speed that I expected out of them. And sure enough, you know, Denny Hamlin, three laps into the race, he passed him for the lead. And it was looking like, 
like I said, it was it was looking like Denny was going to be the one that was going to dominate the day. But sure enough, we got the competition caution, and you know Brad was able to beat Denny out of the pits and get the lead. But once again, like I said, just not having that long run speed, having that short run speed, like me and Josh Manley have been talking about these first five races. Is you know him and Jeremy Bollins, they seem to take off really well. I saw a stat last week about how Brad Keselowski this past year, I believe, has been the best on restarts, that he's passed the most cars. And me and Josh, we think, you know, that's all well and good. I mean, especially the 550 horsepower package when you have to pass people early on because it's like follow the leader. But obviously a lot of these races, you have to have that long run speed. And he just didn't have it on Sunday, but his teammates had it. Ryan Blaney passed him for the lead. Joey Logano, sure enough, you know, Blaney <clears throat> early on looking like he was going to be the guy to beat. And 47 laps in, as they were going through turn two, what used to be turn three at Phoenix, Ross Chastain, he checked up. Alex Bowman, you know, he checked up to try to not get in the back of him. And Austin Dillon, you know, he got into the back of Alex Bowman, and Alex spun and backed it in the fence. So at that point, you're thinking to yourself, like, yeah, Bowman's day is shot. You know, he's just going to ride around and finish five laps down in 31st. You guys know how critical I am of Alex Bowman. But I personally thought that he did a hell of a job to drive a car that he backed into the fence. And obviously, the left side was kind of flattened and everything. For him to finish 13th, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. That's one hell of a drive right there. And like I said, in the midst of a prove-it year, once again. And I mean, so far, only two top tens to start the year. I mean, he definitely he definitely has to get his act together. Otherwise, like I said, who knows who could be in that 48 car come 2022. Like I talked about, if I'm Jeff Gordon and Rick Hendrick, I put those personal feelings aside from 2009 and 2014 and try to get Brad Keselowski in that 48 car come 2022 to a long-term deal if somehow, someway, him and Roger Penske are not able to come to terms on a long-term extension. Because Brad deserves more than, than just that measly one-year extension that Roger Penske gave him. Anyway, getting back to, it, like I said, the Penske cars of Ryan Blaney and Joey Logano, they showed that long run speed early on. Blaney, sure enough, he goes on to win the first stage. But from that point on, Joey Logano asserted himself as the guy to beat. You know, him, Paul Wolf and the 22 crew, incredible pit stops. It seemed like just about every pit stop, they were first out of the pits. And it was looking like, you know, Joey Logano was going to win the spring race at Phoenix for two years in a row. And sure enough, he won the second stage. But the one thing I noticed at the end of that second stage was, wow, Martin Truex Jr., he was closing in on on Joey considerably at the end of that long green flag run. And I thought to myself, I think Truex might have something for him. And, I mean, this was a guy that bounced it off the wall coming off of what used to be turn four early on in the race. And Martin said at that point, he thought, well, our day's shot. We'll probably finish about 15th. But, hey, like Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the 2000 Winston All-Star race, sometimes when you bounce that car off the fence, it actually makes it better. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget when, when he won the Winston as a rookie and his dad came into victory lane to congratulate him. And Dale Sr. said he adjusted it on the wall back there. <laughs> he, you know, he, he's like, I thought I had something for Jarrett. And, you know, here this red thing came. And he adjusted it on the wall back there. <laughs> anyway, so I noticed how he was able to close in on Joey Logano. 
And sure enough, with less than 100 laps to go, he did, in fact, pass him for the lead. And from that point on, it really, really looked like, you know, like Truex now was going to be the guy to beat. And, you know, from that point on, we had Tyler Reddick blow a tire. And I think the other big storyline so far in 2021, you know, we talk about how dominant Hendrick Motorsports has been. We've talked about what's really going on with Kevin Harvick. Well, what's really going on with Kyle Busch? I mean, Kyle started seventh last Sunday at Phoenix, and he was a non-factor all day. He had a commitment line violation, and he faded, and the battle that him and Ross Chastain had, and finally, you know, Ross Ross had enough, and he spun him going down what's now the front stretch at Phoenix Raceway. And Kyle immediately came over the radio and said, well, I'm glad the 42 wrecked me. I was about to wreck him. You know, here's the thing, folks. When I look back at... This is how I'm going to tie Dale Earnhardt Jr. into this. Without a doubt, to me, the best crew chief he ever had was his uncle, Tony Uri Sr. Tony Uri Sr., I mean, he was he became a father figure to Dale, obviously, when, when Dale Earnhardt was killed at the 2001 Daytona 500. Tony Sr., he didn't care about how much of a superstar Dale Jr. was. He didn't care that he was NASCAR's most popular driver. Dale Jr. even said it in his book, Driver Number 8, that he wrote about his rookie season in 2000. He put a picture in there of himself and Tony Uri Sr. when they won the Pepsi 400 at Daytona in 2001. And he said, this is my Uncle Tony Uri Sr., and he's not afraid to chew my ass out whatsoever if he feels like I get out of line. That's when Dale Earnhardt Jr., was at his best. And no disrespect to Steve Letarte, Steve revitalized his career. You know, he needed someone to believe in him. But early on, those early years, he needed someone that was not afraid to chew him out and keep him in line, and that was his uncle, Tony Uri Sr. Anyway, to make a long story short, 2004, they win six races. They almost win the championship. But there was a lot of fighting internally with him, Tony Uri Sr., Tony Uri Jr. And once the season was over... They were like, oh, we want to make a change. You know, we want to make Michael Waltrip's team better. And Dale Jr. was like, yeah, get right ahead. Get right ahead. And he said it at the very end of his career. That was the biggest regret he ever had was breaking up that team, Tony Uri Sr., Tony Uri Jr. And obviously being 30 years old and just being like, oh, yeah, you know, I can go right ahead. I can win with anyone. And he said, obviously, if this would have been 10 years later, he would have done everything in his power to to help mend those fences and they would have been together and probably would have won a championship or two. Anyway, my point with Kyle Busch is what made him and Adam Stevens so perfect for each other. We know how abrasive Kyle could be. And Adam, unlike Alan Gustafson, unlike Steve Addington, unlike Dave Rogers, the crew chiefs that Kyle had before Adam was never afraid to give it right back to Kyle and tell him, shut up, you drive the race car, I'll work on it. And obviously, you know, last year, Kyle went through undoubtedly the worst season of his career up until now. And I think that obviously when you have a bad season like that, I mean, you know, Dale Jr. had a phenomenal season in 2004. But Kyle last year to only win one race, and it was the October race at Texas Motor Speedway after they were already eliminated from championship contention. And you could you could even tell right then and there that 
that relationship was broken. And that him and Adam Stevens, you could tell when Adam Stevens said in the media center that night at Texas Motor Speedway, I don't know what I'm doing next year. When he was asked if he was going to be Kyle's crew chief in 2021, you knew it was coming from a mile away. And you hear the interview with Graham Bensinger when he talked about he wanted to make changes to the pit crew, but Adam, you know, he believes in those guys so much. And he was like, he was like, let's go do something else. And Kyle being Kyle, you know, feeling like, oh, you know, he, he quit on me. Well, Kyle, you know, I'm sure when it's all said and done, just my personal opinion, when your career is over, I guarantee you, you'll say that the biggest regret that you had, it wasn't obviously leaving Hendrick Motorsports for Joe Gibbs Racing. That turned out to be a blessing in disguise. But you watch, Kyle Busch one day is going to say the biggest regret of his career was not being able to mend fences with Adam Stevens after that 2020 season. Because to me, it's early, but I have never seen Kyle Busch run this bad so far honestly. I mean, just taking a look at it, he finished 25th on Sunday. You know, he had a shot to win the Daytona 500, but Daytona's Daytona. Getting caught up in the wreck on the last lap. But hitting the wall on the front stretch at the road course, finishing 35th, barely getting a top 10 at Miami, and finishing third at Las Vegas, you know, but that's the thing. Kyle Busch has not led a single lap in five races so far. This is by far the worst I have ever seen Kyle Busch. And I guarantee you, you know, he, he might not be saying it now, but he'll say it later on in life that that's, that's the biggest regret was him and Adam Stevens not being able to work things out. Kind of like the way that Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Tony Erie Sr. were at the end of 2004. Because no disrespect to Ben Bayshore, but obviously you could tell that that is not a good combination right there. I think more than anything, if I were Joe Gibbs and I were going to split these guys up, I think more than anything, I probably would have paired Jason Ratcliffe with Kyle Busch. I mean, think of all of the success that those two had together in the Xfinity Series. I mean, how Jason, really more than anyone, just how good he has been with any driver that he has worked with in his career. I mean, think of it. Jason Ratcliffe, he has been around since the 90s. He won with Casey Atwood, who was going to be considered the next Jeff Gordon. He won with Jamie McMurray. With Kyle Busch, they won, get ready for this. They won 25 Xfinity races together at Joe Gibbs Racing and the 2009 Xfinity Championship. To me, I felt like that would have been a perfect pairing right then and there. Because let's face it, him and Adam Stevens, they're never getting back together. Christopher Bell, he's 26 years old. He's finally a cup winner. And obviously, he's a lot more laid back and easygoing than Kyle is. So I feel like, you know, they're going to be together for a long, long time to come. Anyway, getting back to the race, sure enough, Kyle's teammate, Martin Trex Jr., going on to score his first win of the season, his first at Phoenix in the 28th of his career, ironically tying him with Carl Edwards, who left the 19 car in the middle of the 2016-2017 offseason, kind of like a Barry Sanders. I mean, who really expected that? Joey Logano was second after leading 143 laps, Denny Hamlin third, Brad Keselowski fourth, and Chase Elliott rounded out the top five. Kevin Harvick was sixth once again, not leading a single lap. Kyle Larson, he was definitely the show on Sunday. No disrespect to... Martin Trex Jr. or Joey Logano or Denny Hamlin, but Kyle obviously having to come from the back 
sped not once but twice on pit road and finished seventh. So picture what he could have done if not for starting at the back in those two penalties. Probably could have won the race or at least finished second or third. William Byron from the back of the field to eighth. Christopher Bell ninth. Ryan Blaney tenth. Ryan said that you know him and Todd Gordon, they just sort of lost speed there at the end and you know really didn't do a good job keeping up with the track. Eric Almirola on his birthday from 32nd to 11th. That's good, but obviously not good enough to, you know, as far as his status for 2022. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 12th. Alex Bowman, 13th. His best friend, Matt DiBenedetto, 14th. Kurt Busch, 15th. Bubba Wallace, 16th. That's not really an indication. He ran inside the top 10 most of the day. Mike Wheeler, you know, he made that decision to stay out under that last caution. Just didn't work out. Austin Dillon, 17th. Chris Buescher, 18th. Ross Chastain, 19th. Eric Jones, 20th. Daniel Suarez, 21st. Chase Briscoe, 22nd. Not really an indication. He had a top 15 car. Michael McDowell, definitely his worst race of the year. Not a good homecoming for him in 23rd. Justin Moneymaker Haley, 24th. And Kyle Busch, 25th. Ryan Priest, 26th. Definitely his worst race of the year. Corey LaJoy, Ryan Newman, Tyler Reddick, BJ McLeod, Cole Custer. Running inside the top 10 without his crew chief, but tried to clear himself in front of Bubba Wallace and hit the wall and finished 31st. Quinn Huff, James Davison, Garrett Smithley, Josh Balicki, Cody Ware, Anthony Alfredo, and Timmy Hill. That was the field on Sunday at Phoenix. Now, after the race was over, everything was fine as far as inspection goes, but two loose lug nuts on... The number 99 of Daniel Suarez. So his crew chief, Travis Mack, he is suspended from tomorrow's race. Two loose lug nuts on the number two forward of Brad Keselowski. So that means that Jeremy Bowens is suspended for tomorrow's race at Atlanta. And once again, once again, what is it with Roger Penske having... Brad Keselowski's pit crew pit Austin Sendrick on Saturdays. I, I Excuse me, I never realized that I guess Xfinity is more important than Cup now all of a sudden. I mean, I get that these, these Cup crews, I get that a lot of them pit Xfinity cars on Saturday. And, you know, it makes for good reps and everything. But to me, it's like it's hurting Brad Keselowski's crew. It's like the bigger picture is, is Xfinity. I mean, well, Austin Sendrick, you know, obviously his father is the team president. But my point is, you pitted Austin Sendrick in the championship race last November at Phoenix. Wins the race, wins the championship. All well and good. And sure enough, the next day, the cup championship, Brad Keselowski has a shot. And the pit crew was absolutely horrendous all day long. 15, 16 second stops. Losing spots on pit road. And then sure enough... This past Sunday is just the latest example of it. You know, sure enough, he won the race off pit road that first time, but how many times, myself and Josh Manley, how many times, you know, would we look up at the screen, oh, wow, Brad lost two, three, four spots on pit road. I don't see the benefit in having his team pit Austin Cynic on Saturdays. I'm sorry, but that's just the way I feel. And this is just absolutely unacceptable. Unacceptable. You're trying to win a championship. You've clearly shown ever since the swaps were made beginning of 2020, Brad Keselowski and Jeremy Bollins, Joey Logano and Paul Wolf, 
Ryan Blaney and Todd Gordon. Clearly, to me, I think that Brad and Jeremy, they have been the best of those three ever since those three teams went through personnel changes. It blows my mind how, you know, you clearly didn't learn your lesson from that championship race. And Brad drove that car as hard as he possibly could in that championship race. But every single time he was having to bail them out, he passed Chase Elliott at the end of the championship race to win that second stage. Pit crew screws up once again, 15, 16 second stops. So what, what happens? Oh, you change, you change two crew members on the two crew during the offseason. Two. When will you learn your lesson? Seriously, that, that's what I want to know. And to make matters worse, yeah, I know Austin Cindric is in tomorrow's cup race. Grant Hutchins, the team engineer, he's going to be the interim crew chief? Really? The guy's never had one race as a Cup Series crew chief. And I get that you want to keep it within the team and everything, but I would have gone with Brian Wilson, Austin's Xfinity crew chief. You know, he was Brad's engineer when they won that championship in 2012. And when Paul Wolf got suspended in 2017, who was the guy that filled in for him? Brian Wilson. They almost won Talladega. They finished second at Kansas. They finished third at Sonoma. So, obviously, if you're in a fantasy league, as far as tomorrow goes, definitely, and I mean definitely, don't consider Brad Keselowski. Because, obviously, not having your crew chief, I think that's going to be a big, big hindrance for him tomorrow, as far as his chances go. And, you know, I Bob Pachris, I, I asked Bob on Twitter, I, I said, you know, Okay, so Cindric is on the pole. So does this mean that you know Brad's Brad's pit crew is going to pit him again today? And Bob was like, "No, it's actually a developmental crew since he's going to be in the Cup race on Sunday." And he said, "I don't get what the big deal is. You don't get what the big deal is. They cost him a freaking championship this past November at Phoenix just by pitting Austin Cindric on Saturday and looking absolutely pathetic and terrible on Sunday." the The Cup Series is the big picture. You know, and to me, this is just the latest example of Roger Penske being absolutely nothing but disrespectful to Brad Keselowski. Disrespectful. You know, the guy that has accomplished the most for you, winning the Nationwide Championship in 2010, winning the Cup Championship in 2012, 33 Cup wins, winning the Southern 500, the Brickyard 400, which Indianapolis means the most to Roger Penske, you know, winning the Coca-Cola 600 last year. Should have won that championship, if not for the pit crew, underperforming. You only get a one-year extension. And like I said, these are inexcusable mistakes to have two loose lug nuts. Obviously, this is a safety violation. That's, that's why Jeremy Bullens and Travis Mack are going to be sitting home tomorrow in Atlanta. And it's, like I said, to me, the Cup Series and Sunday – that's the big picture. Xfinity, like I said, that's why it's a developmental series. That's why you have that pit crew that Austin Cindric is going to have today and tomorrow. That's what it's meant for. Not bringing down cut pit crews. And like I said, sometimes it works, but obviously it, it, it's proven to work against Brad. Two Phoenix races in a row. So, like I said, obviously that's just the way I feel about it. And to me, like I said, if... They cannot give Brad a long-term extension at Team Penske. He deserves more than than just a one-year extension, let's face it. 
If not for that, like I said, entertain offers from Hendrick Motorsports, Stuart Haas Racing, or 23XI when there's talk about them possibly expanding to, to another team. You know, and even, I was going to say, I mean, even 23XI, real quick, not to get off on a tangent, but John Hunter Nemechek, he's setting himself up perfectly. Maybe one day take over that 19 car. I don't think Martin Trex Jr. is going to be racing for another two or three years. Or possibly even, like I said, 23XI when they expand. He's setting himself up perfectly. But like I said, to me, it's just all about respect. And to me, sometimes I feel like the respect that Roger Penske should show Brad Keselowski, I just feel like it's severely lacking. And now, time for possibly my favorite segment of the show, the best spring moments at Atlanta Motor Speedway. So, back in 1980, just weeks after Al Michaels called the Miracle on Ice, he got to call the race at Atlanta Motor Speedway on ABC with another legend, Jackie Stewart. And that day, Dale Earnhardt started 31st on the field, drove all the way up through the field to win the race. It was the second win of his career. Had some engine problems in qualifying, but like I said, from 31st to 1st, and sure enough, this was the first of five wins in what would be his first championship season in 1980. Also that day, there was a kid that made his NASCAR Winston Cup debut. And that turned out to be one of his best friends, Rusty Wallace. And Rusty finished second that day, ironically driving for Roger Penske. And sure enough, 11 years later, the two of them would reunite. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, in 1984, Benny Parsons, we all remember him for his great TV work with ESPN and then NBC. But he was also a great race car driver as well. And the spring race at Atlanta in 1984, that turned out to be the 21st and final win of his career. And then in 86, Morgan Shepard. It's pretty amazing to think that he's going to be almost 80 years old later this year and raced right up until two years ago. But Morgan was a damn good driver back in the day, especially in his late 40s and early 50s, and especially at Atlanta Motor Speedway, winning the spring race there in 86 in a part-time car, number 47 car owned by, by Jack Beebe, and to beat one of the masters of Atlanta, Dale Earnhardt. Pretty incredible. Ironically, 33 years ago today, the spring race at Atlanta. To no surprise, Dale Earnhardt won that race, but it was his first win with GM Goodrich as the primary sponsor. You know, those early years of his career from 1979 and 1987, obviously the, the yellow and blue colors with Wrangler jeans, but obviously, you know, Wrangler, at the end of 1987, they decided to do other things. GM Goodrich, they had been an associate sponsor of Dale, Richard Childress, and the three team. And obviously that iconic, and I mean iconic, black and silver paint scheme. Sure enough, the first official win, Dale Earnhardt, that GM Goodrich car, it was at Atlanta in 1988. And then in 1990, Dale, during the race, was actually fighting a little bit of a stomach bug. And there was a late race restart. They went off in turn one. Morgan Shepard was leading. And Alan Kowicki, he was lapped down. He sort of slid up into Morgan a little bit. And Dale Earnhardt snuck right underneath him with two laps to go to get another Atlanta win. Nine wins at Atlanta for the Intimidator. And like I said, all, doing this with a stomach bug yet. Then who could forget 1993? The blizzard of 93. 
it's incredible to think, you know, that Friday, March 12th, practice, qualifying, everything going on just as normal. And then sure enough, that Saturday morning, March 13th, everybody waking up and there's two feet of snow on the ground at Atlanta Motor Speedway. So obviously there was no way in hell that the track was going to be ready that Sunday. And they postponed the race to, ironically, 28 years ago today, Saturday afternoon race at Atlanta Motor Speedway. And going on to score the fourth and final win of his career was none other than Morgan Shepard at the age of 51. Now, when you look at Homestead Miami Speedway, it's rectangular. And obviously there's pretty high progressive banking. And, you know, that is what Atlanta Motor Speedway used to look like before it was reconfigured to the dog leg configuration that it has. But sure enough, that last race on the Atlanta, the old Atlanta configuration, 1997, that was won by Dale Jarrett. And of course, some savage crashes in that race, Steve Grissom being one of them. And then in 2000, just a couple of months after having surgery done on his neck, Dale Earnhardt looking like the Dale Earnhardt of old. And those last couple laps, him running the high side, Bobby Labonte, the master that he was of Atlanta as well. Six wins at Atlanta for Bobby. But like I said, Dale on the high side, Bobby down low, and beating Bobby back to the line by about, I would say, a hundredth of a second for the 75th win of his career. And I think at that point, that pretty much showed to everybody that Dale Earnhardt was back. And sure enough, that 75th win, that helmet, he gave that helmet to Tony Stewart, who, by the way, congratulations to him and NHRA drag racer Leah Pruitt. They announced their engagement just the other night. And, you know, Tony, he said that he has a helmet collection and he wanted one of Dale's helmets and Dale gave him that helmet. And he was like, Dale, he's like, you don't have to give me this one. That's from your 75th win. He said, no, he, he said, he said, you're a hell of a race car driver. I want you to have this one. So obviously in 2001, losing Dale on the last lap of the Daytona 500 and Richard Childress making that decision that he made to put Kevin Harvick in that GM Goodwrench car, taking the black paint off of it, making it white, and obviously taking the three off of it and making it the number 29. And three weeks after Dale's death, that epic battle with Kevin, Dale Jarrett, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jerry Nadeau, the five of them battling for the win those last 10 laps at Atlanta. Kevin going three wide for the lead against Dale Jarrett and Jerry Nadeau. Dale Jr., like I said, obviously everyone was wanting to see Dale Jr. win. This was just three weeks after losing his father. And unfortunately, Tony Stewart, his engine was blowing up. A piece came out of the engine, and Dale Jr. ran over it, cut the right front tire down, and he finished 15th. So ultimately, it came down to Kevin Harvick and Jeff Gordon. And once again, almost like like a replay of the year before, like Larry McReynolds said, Kevin running the top of the racetrack, Jeff running the bottom. And just that call that Mike Joy made, you know, that call that Mike Joy made, Gordon got loose, it's Harvick, Harvick by inches. And just seeing the tears from Chocolate Myers and that GM Goodwrench crew and how Daryl Waltrip said, you know, I wondered if, <clears throat> I'm sure they probably wondered if they would ever win another race after Dale was gone, but they've answered that call today. And just teams congratulating Kevin as he came down pit road and, 
Richard Childress telling Danny Earnhardt, Dale's brother, he said, this one's for Dale. Obviously a very, very emotional win. And the following year, 2002, Tony Stewart, that Home Depot car, finally winning in Home Depot's backyard and beating Dale Earnhardt Jr. and going on his first of three wins for that championship season. And then in 2003, Bobby, Bobby Labonte, that pass that he made on the outside of Jeff Gordon with less than 10 laps to go to get the lead, to get his sixth and final Atlanta win. Like I said, 2003, that was definitely Bobby Labonte's last few glimpses of glory. And then in 2004, everybody was expecting Dale Earnhardt Jr. to be a championship contender. He won the Daytona 500. He finished fifth in the last race at Rockingham, which was undoubtedly his worst track. So everyone was thinking like, yeah, this is the year Dale Jr. is going to win this championship. And they go to Las Vegas and struggled so bad that him and Tony Sr., they took that car to the garage area three times during that race and finished 35th. And so immediately everyone's like, oh, well, you know, this just shows, you know, Dale Jr., he's only good at Daytona and Talladega. He's not a real championship contender. Well, they went to Atlanta, and he passed Jeremy Mayfield late in the race and just checked out on the field and beat Jeremy Mayfield for the win by almost five seconds. And when he got out of that car, just seeing that enthusiasm out of him, how he said, <laughs> talk about from zero to hero, probably one of the more underrated wins of Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s career. A year later, Carl Edwards, 24 hours after the first Bush Series win of his career, passing Jimmy Johnson on the last corner, the last lap for his first cup win. Obviously the first time that's ever happened. And then Jimmy, you know, in 2007, a battle of the home improvement cars. You know, Jimmy with his Lowe's car and Tony with the Home Depot car. And like I said, Jimmy and Lowe's winning in Home Depot's backyard. Crazy to think about. So going into 2008, obviously there was talk about Dale Earnhardt Jr. joining Hendrick Motorsports, taking Kyle Busch's place, obviously the bad blood between those two. But Kyle going to Joe Gibbs Racing and Joe Gibbs Racing joining Toyota. And Kyle beating Tony Stewart and beating Dale Earnhardt Jr. to give Toyota their first win in the Cup Series. That was pretty incredible. And then big brother Kurt winning the next two spring races at Atlanta before the spring race at Atlanta was no more. But obviously in 2010 when Carl Edwards, when he flipped Brad Keselowski down the front stretch at 190 miles an hour and didn't get suspended for that. Pretty ridiculous to think about. But obviously, in 2016, Jimmy Johnson tying the late great Dale Earnhardt for 76 wins and driving around the track with three fingers out the window in memory of Dale. And how fitting that Dale Earnhardt Jr., his, you know, finished second to his teammate that day on a day when he honored his father. And how fitting that Dale Earnhardt Jr. was the first one to go to victory lane and congratulate him. But going into 2017, I knew that it was going to be Dale Jr.'s last season. I just knew it. Just a gut feeling. And the night before that Atlanta race, I remember thinking to myself, he's going to retire. And that day at Atlanta, the struggles that he had, cut tires, speeding on pit road, thinking that a wheel was having a loose wheel, thinking that a tire was flat and it was up, you just knew that, that the end was coming. But the night before that race, I thought to myself, I think my next driver is going to be Brad Keselowski. Just blue-collar, grit, the things that he does for the military. My dad was already a fan of him. And Kevin Harvick was running away with it that day. 
and he sped on pit road. And the battle that Brad Keselowski and Kyle Larson had there at the end and Brad passing Larson for the win, that was amazing. And then Kevin, the following year, beating Brad for the win, his second win in Atlanta, but holding those three fingers out the window in memory of Dale Earnhardt. And then in 2019, how Brad got sick that Friday night at Atlanta, flu-like symptoms to the point that Austin Sendrick was practicing his car that Saturday at Atlanta and was on standby just in case Brad couldn't go the full distance. And sure enough, Brad winning at Atlanta for the second time in three years with flu-like symptoms. Definitely, like I said, true grit. True grit. That's what I think of when I think of Brad Keselowski. And then last year, you know, Kevin Harvick dominating the second half of that race and once again holding three fingers out the window in memory of Dale Earnhardt and how he told Jamie Little that at this point, you know, Atlanta's always going to be a special place to him and he just wants to honor all the great things that Dale Earnhardt did for that sport. So tomorrow, 3 o'clock on Fox, the Folds of Honor 500, Jeff Gordon, Mike Joy, and Clint Boyer with the call. And the great thing about Folds of Honor, they've been sponsoring this race at Atlanta since 2015. Their mission is to provide scholarships to children whose parents were either severely wounded or killed in combat. And Brad Keselowski, his sponsor, Auto Trader, their headquarters are in Atlanta. So every year for this race, they have the tribute to Vets Paint Scheme. And tomorrow, Brad will have the names of over 200 veterans on his car and this beautiful red, white, and blue helmet that he has for today's race, it's going to be auctioned off, and the proceeds will go towards his foundation, the Checkered Flag Foundation. So 325 laps at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Stage 1, lap 105. Stage 2, lap 210. And on the pole is 2012 Atlanta winner Denny Hamlin. Teammate Martin Trex Jr., he's going to be starting second. Joey Logano third. Brad Keselowski fourth. Two wins at Atlanta, 2017, 2019. But like I said, Jeremy Bullins, he's been suspended for this race. So honestly, I don't really think Brad has much of a chance tomorrow. Sorry, but that's just the way I feel. Hometown kid Chase Elliott, fifth. Teammate Kyle Larson, sixth. Kevin Harvick, the three wins at Atlanta. He will start seventh. Christopher Bell, eighth. William Byron, Willie B. Woo! He's going to start ninth. And Ryan Blaney, tenth. Three-time Atlanta winner, Kurt Busch in 11th, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 12th, Austin Dillon 13th, Alex Bowman 14th, Bubba Wallace 15th, and Eric Amarola 16th. Chris Busher matching his car number in 17th, Michael McDowell 18th, Kyle Busch. Two wins at Atlanta, starting 19th, Matt DiBenedetto 20th, and Kyle Busch's best friend, Ross Chastain, starting right behind him in 21st. How ironic. Eric Jones, 22nd, Ryan Priest, 23rd, Chase Briscoe, 24th, Daniel Suarez, 25th, Justin Moneymaker Haley, 26th, Cole Custer, 27th, Ryan Newman, 28th, Tyler Reddick, 29th. And rounding out the field, Corey LaJoy, BJ McLeod, Anthony Alfredo, Cody Ware, James Davison, Quinn Huff, Joey Gase, Josh Balicki, Timmy Hill, and Austin Sendrick in his second NASCAR Cup Series start. So obviously a lot of talk has been what's wrong with Kyle Busch, but the other talk is what's wrong with Kevin Harvick. Him and Rodney Childers, you know, is this the beginning of the end? Is this when Kevin's performance starts to drop off, being 45 years old? Is their relationship falling apart? Obviously that 
that meltdown that Kevin had at Martinsville, trying to get back up through the field and sure enough wrecking at the final corner and missing the final four. But Rodney Childers, more than anything, he just thinks that, number one, competition's caught up to them, but number two, how the wheel wells. They had an advantage with the wheel wells, and obviously NASCAR trying to crack down more on the inspection process. So for that reason alone, he feels like that's taken away whatever advantage that not only the four team had, but Stuart Haas Racing had. Because let's face it, Stuart Haas Racing as a whole, they look horrible so far this year. With Eric Almirola and Cole Custer, obviously with Chase Briscoe, you know, the growing pains are there. That's expected with a rookie, but it doesn't help when you can't go test anywhere either. I know Chase is going to go test at Nashville Super Speedway on Tuesday, but it's a tire test. That's the only way you're allowed to test. So I think, obviously, there's going to be a lot of questions as to whether or not they are going to be able to perform and live up to the performance that's expected out of them. So... Boone is going with Denny Hamlin, and he said it might be a bit of a chalk pick as well. But, I mean, obviously, you know, Denny has gotten off to an incredible start this year. So many top fives, so many chances to win, whether it was the Daytona 500 or, obviously, Las Vegas Motor Speedway. He just feels like they're due sooner or later. And it would be easy to pick Martin Truex Jr. for this race or even the Xfinity race later today. But, like I said, Truex, he hasn't been in an Xfinity car in 11 years. And he's always been close at Atlanta, but like I said, just always seems to come up short. When I look at the Penske boys, Joey Logano definitely has the best shot of the three. I think Ryan Blaney, just having Todd Gordon, obviously that improves his chances because Ryan was horrible at Atlanta with Jeremy Bullins. But like I said, obviously with Brad Keselowski not having Jeremy Bullins there and having your engineer who has never, ever been a crew chief for a cup race i think that's definitely going to hurt brad's performance which is a shame so like i said unfortunately i just don't see brad finishing in the top 10 tomorrow as far as the hendrick boys i know how much chase elliott will, would love to win in atlanta especially all the success that his father bill had there but i think kyle larson definitely has the best shot of those four william byron you know he's somewhat struggled at atlanta and alex bowman has struggled tremendously at atlanta I think I think the big dark horse for tomorrow is going to be Kurt Busch. Kurt has three wins in Atlanta, and just seems like no matter what car he's in, whether it was with Roush or Penske, Stuart Haas, and obviously now with Ganassi, he's always a factor at Atlanta. And him and Matt McCall, you know, they, they got to they start showing a little more. And I'm sure that has to feel good for Kurt, too, being able to outrun little brother Kyle every weekend like he's done. So when I look to tomorrow, I just think it's going to be a race of tire conservation and tire wear. And obviously the thing with Atlanta is even though it's a multi-groove racetrack, even though you're going to see Kyle Larson running right up against the fence, even though you're going to see Brad Keselowski running through the middle, even though you're going to see Kevin Harvick right down on the bottom of the track, every time for a restart, obviously with this choose rule that we have now, every time you're going to want to take the inside for some reason, that abrasive surface that Atlanta has, you start on the outside and it just spins the tires badly. We've seen it happen so many times before. So I think the biggest thing is, like I said, tire wear, tire conservation, and like Ryan Blaney said, you know, just keeping up with the racetrack, which is obviously something that him and Todd Gordon were not able to do this past Sunday at Phoenix. So I told Boone, I said, you know, he said that he's already hit the panic button with Kevin Harvick. I'm not there just yet. 
I'm going to go out. It might seem like like a bit of a limb, but I am going to take Kevin Harvick for this race tomorrow at Atlanta. And obviously I told Boone, I said, if, if they run like crap tomorrow, then I'll hit the panic button. But like I said, he has three wins there. Obviously that emotional win in 2001, just three weeks after Dale's death. But him and Rodney Childers, those two wins at Atlanta, and they should have a hell of a lot more. They've dominated every race at Atlanta ever since they, they were paired together in 2014. They've led at least 45 laps in every, and I mean every Atlanta race they've done together. But getting caught in a wreck in 2014 or starting on the outside in 2016, the speeding penalty in 2017, I think Kevin Harvick and Rodney Childers, I feel like they will make a statement tomorrow either way, in a good way or a bad way. If they win, you know, this shows that they're just fine. There's nothing wrong. But if they perform, then obviously there is plenty of concern if you're Kevin Harvick, Rodney Childers, or a fan of that team. Also, look out for Christopher Bell. Christopher won the truck race here in 2017. He won the Xfinity race here in 2019. I mean, that's that's a hell of a trend that he's on. I think he's definitely, and I mean definitely, going to run in the top five tomorrow and be a factor. So there you go for today. Me and Boone, we're going with John Hunter Nemechek in the truck race for Xfinity. He's taking Austin Sendrick. I'm taking A.J. Allmendinger. And for the cup race, Boone's going with Denny Hamlin. I'm taking the number four of Kevin Harvick. I would definitely love to see another tribute to Dale Earnhardt 20 years after that first win, but only time will tell. That's going to do it for episode 51 of Jake's Take. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Have a great day. Enjoy the racing this weekend. The Bristol Dirt Race next weekend. I know I'm excited. Boone's excited. Johnny Glow's excited. So going to be another action-packed show. Have a great day. Y'all take it easy.